Welcome to today's VJ Hemal podcast. In today's podcast, leading experts on myeloproliferative neoplasms, Ruin Messer and Naveen Pemaraji, discuss the key updates from the EHAR and ASCO 2021 meetings, in particular highlighting new data on JAK inhibitors, research into therapies for rarer MPNs, and the latest news from key phase three trials. Welcome. I'm Ruben Messa. I'm the executive director of the Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio. MB Anderson, a career-focused MPN investigator, and joined by my wonderful friend, colleague, uh, and fellow devotee of the MPNs, Dr. Naveen Pemraju. Welcome, Dr. Pem. Hi, Ruben. Thanks for having me here. Wonderful. Well, many exciting things going on in MPNs. We've just had a couple uh, wonderful global virtual congresses, both ASCO and EHA. Uh, we're all eager to get back in, in person and hopefully can, can, can have a, a live event in December at ASH. Uh, and certainly we'll put a plug in for our Texas MPN workshop for folks to consider registering for for August 20th and 21st. That's a roundup on, on MPNs. That is uh, a free registration supported by our partners. So I hope that you can join us for that. But, but a lot of exciting things going on in, uh, in MPNs. Why don't we break up our discussion into, into a few different sections? So first, let's jump into a little bit regarding uh, JAK inhibitors. Uh, a lot of exciting new things in, in JAK inhibitors. Uh, Naveen, uh, why don't you share one of your kind of key takeaways from, from the ASCO EHA arc as it relates to where we stand with JAK inhibition, now about 10 years out from uh, the uh, first approvals of JAK inhibitors. Right, thanks Ruben. And, and there has been some nice movement in our field in this sort of primary category that we've come to know and love, that of JAK inhibition. So after RUX and then the second approved uh, agent Fedratinib, there is some activity now. We saw data at ASCO and EHA uh, with regards to several other JAK inhibitors. So we know about uh, pecritinib, for example, which is in the phase three testing. You presented some very compelling data with momolotinib, specifically with the achieving of transfusion independence uh, relating to long-term outcomes, uh, potentially even overall survival, which I thought was quite compelling. And then there's even new agents out there, jakitinib and others that we're starting to hear uh, data about. So the concept in JAK inhibitors has been, what else does the molecule target? So is that JAK1? Is it ACVR1? Is it bromodomain FLIP3? And then what are the toxicities of each of these uh, JAK inhibitors? So I've been very uh, impressed to see maybe some of them improve anemia, as is the case with momolotinib, as you brilliantly showed. Maybe some can be administered in the setting of low platelets, as we saw with pacritinib and then uh, so on and so forth. So Ruben, for me, the excitement for, is for our patients is that maybe I can have a day where I have five or six of these in the clinic and I can sequence them in, in various ways personalized to each patient, or maybe I'll have a biomarker one day to select which one of these upfront I can give. But Ruben, I'd love to hear your take, which is the concept that each JAK inhibitor is not the same and that they may be able to produce different outcomes and different toxicities. I think you're very right. You know, their JAK inhibitors are, are important for MPN patients and particularly in myelofibrosis, uh, as well as, you know, I think for, for many like the MPV. Uh, I think one key takeaway is that JAK inhibitors 
when they have a significant response, likely improves survival. Right. And I, I do wonder whether this is a genuine class effect. I think it's been demonstrated beyond question with ruxolidinib in, in multiple ways, both sure. long data from the comfort studies, and now even at this year's events, further real-world evidence, multiple real-world studies that really suggest an improvement in, in survival. Second, Claire presented on behalf of, of us and other investigators uh, data with fibratinib uh, showing improvement in, in survival uh, in both the Jakarta and Jakarta 2 studies, the frontline and secondline studies. Uh, again, in people really achieving response. So I think being on a JAK inhibitor has an impact, but I think the quality of the response that you have is also tied right. with, with that benefit. And there may be ties as it relates to are you an adequate dose? What response did you achieve? Uh, I presented, as you had mentioned, the, the very intriguing observation mm -hmm. that yes, there appears to be a survival advantage with, with mamalodinib, but that it seems to be most strongly tied to those that achieve a transfusion independent response in terms of their anemia. Some correlation with splenomegaly and symptoms, uh, no doubt, but, but the strongest signal was this tie-in with transfusion uh, independence. And is that solely because of an increase in red cells and oxygen carrying capacity, decreased debilitation, or is it a surrogate for a decrease in inflammation that helps uh, further prolong survival? Uh, Mamelodinib decreases ACVR1, or ACVR1 inhibitor. It can decrease hepcidin. Hepcidin is, is an inflammatory marker. So I think that's really interesting. It may have some implications regarding the benefits of achieving anemia response for individuals with other therapies that might impact anemia, such as lispatercept or... Uh, as a secondary endpoint with things like the BET inhibitor from Constellation or, or others. Uh, Pacridinib, uh, additionally, we continue to learn more impact for cytopenic myelofibrosis patients, uh, impact through other mechanistic aspects on the inflammasome. It's an IRAC right. uh, inhibitor that may have other benefits. So, so I suspect as the JAK inhibitor field evolves, patients will be on likely a JAK inhibitor uh, and you optimize JAK inhibition. Which, which agent? I, I suspect we'll get more subtlety regarding which agent for which patient at which time. Yeah. Uh, are we on the right dose? Is it the right patient? Is there a marker to suggest uh, you know, uh, a, a different JAK inhibitor or when to switch? But then the next question will be, should you be on a JAK inhibitor alone or should you be on something in combination? So why don't you share with folks a little bit, and these studies are more, the large phase three studies are more ongoing, so we don't have data that is quite as mature, right. but how do you think this view of additional drugs is, uh, is evolving for folks watching? Right, Ruben, it's a, it's a perfect segue. So as we expand the JAK inhibitor monotherapy, which has been truly the gold standard for our patients with intermediate and advanced myelofibrosis, 
I really sincerely believe that the era of combination therapy is arriving soon. Uh, the concept here is twofold. One is, can you add on or add back, if you will, a second agent that synergizes or combines with the JAK inhibitor? And can you do it in a way that does not increase toxicity to the point of limiting one or both of these agents? Uh, a couple of these areas are starting to be developed, but as you said, I think still early on. And, and again, we have to uh, emphasize safety. So from the lab, a couple of signals have come out from some of the older agents. Uh, our group uh, showed several years ago that potentially combination with hypomethylator uh, can be something that can be used with JAK inhibitor. And Dr. Odenicki from U of Chicago and others have done this clinically as well, particularly in the accelerated phase uh, patients, Dr. Rumpal and others, uh, particularly as it goes into the blast phase to AML. Interferons have been combined with JAK inhibitor, uh, uh, particularly in, with our European colleagues, and even the IMID drugs such as uh, thalidomide uh, and lenalidomide. Some toxicities were encountered there and some lessons were learned, uh, including keeping the JAK inhibitor on for what you would consider a peak or optimal, something like around three months. Now in this next generation, those lessons have been learned. And so now what we're doing is keeping patients on the JAK inhibitor three months or longer, suboptimal or failing response. And then we're adding in these new agents. Some of them include uh, targeting BCL-XL. So a lot of folks know about BCL-2 with venetoclax, but in our MF-MPN, it appears that uh, upregulation of the BCL-XL appears to be uh, an important pathway to target. And so that's a, a molecule, an oral drug called Navitoclax uh, that you and I and others are uh, involved in developing. And so uh, that we showed an update of those phase two data, encouraging longer term outcomes, uh, starting to show a signal for some overall survival benefit. And then the toxicity of low platelets or thrombocytopenia, which was expected, is not resulting in major bleeding. A second very important strategy is combining with bromodomain inhibitor. This is the constellation drug that you mentioned earlier. Very important as this is also going into phase three and this drug has shown to be not only well tolerated, but also some improvement with regards to the anemia transfusion dependency. So I'm very excited to see the development of that agent and still others, PI3 kinase inhibitors being uh, combined. Remarkably, Ruben, and I'd love to get your take on this. We now are experiencing a time where we have over a dozen or more phase three randomized clinical trials, mainly in this space. And so my question to you would be, what do you think about this? We are going to have some final results potentially in the next two to three years. What do you make of all this uh, in terms of phase three clinical trials when before we never had these? Well, it's really an extraordinary sign of progress. You know, I haven't been involved with this field for, for a while now. You know, when I started in the field, you know, MPNs were, were really a very niche area of focus. You know, at, at a meeting like ASH, there would be one oral session. Oh, wow. <laughs> there was, there was wow. only one, you know, for bio, everything from biology through treatment was, you know, mm -hmm. one oral session, you know, and, and, and half the oral talks included either word hydria or interferon. <laughs> oh, wow. And and, that, you know, that, that was the field. And uh, the, the drugs we were able to try, largely we were able to kind of beg, borrow, or steal from, from other indications. Mm -hmm. You know, we used things like, uh, anti-helminthic agents that might have an impact on TGF-beta. We had a, a agents being developed for pulmonary fibrosis, like perfinidone, that, that was almost inert. 
in, in myelofibrosis. Wow. Uh, and then we would have agents being developed for other reasons like thalidomide, where, where companies like Celgene were, were intrigued, but it was not you know, an area of focus. They were really being developed for myeloma and other things. So to have you know, a dozen myelofibrosis specifically developed therapies is, is really extraordinary. Mm. You know, uh, folks in listening, I would I would really share a couple things. One, if you have patients that really are uh, having a suboptimal response, uh, or even now newly diagnosed patients, there likely are trials that might be an important consideration for them, and would really encourage you to to consider referring patients to your appropriate MPN center for trial participation, it's a key moment uh, in that, you know, getting these trials both accrued, uh, learning their benefit, you know, learning from that data so that we can, again, help best guide therapy. Uh, I think if multiple of these agents are hopefully approved, we likely will learn that there are niches of specific patients that are more likely to benefit than others. Right, right. I don't view it that there's going to be 12 drugs all trying to do the exact same thing. You know, I think that it will be more subtle than that. There will be specific niches. Hmm. I think as well, you know, as was discussed in, in CML, but I think will be a bit broader, therapies that impact myelofibrosis likely will have other uses in human health and disease. We've seen that with ruxolitinib on multiple levels from GBH right. to inflammatory disorders. So I think even if there are 12 drugs for myelofibrosis, I think their impact on human health and disease likely will probably be quite a bit broader than, than only that, uh, that piece. So, so a very exciting time. Please consider uh, referring appropriate patients. Now, a, a really interesting additional niche of, of drugs is starting to develop, and that's drugs looking at the issue of simulating the anemia of chronic disease as a surrogate for phlebotomy. Right. Both hepcidin agonists, and I know there's other drugs uh, a little earlier in development as well. And for me, a fascinating kind of flip side as we try to inhibit hepcidin with, with mamelotinib to, to improve anemia. But why don't you walk folks, through a little bit of what the hepcidin agonist data presented from our colleagues at Mount Sinai. What, what are the implications of, of that interesting drug? Right. Well, thank you, Ruben. Yes, and, and this drug you're mentioning is, is quite exciting. This molecule known as PTG300 is its code name and actually has a name now, Rusfortide. So the PTG300 story is a, a very lovely bench-to-bedside story, and it centers around exactly uh, what you said, which is the observation in P. vera, polycythemia vera, uh, an elevated uh, cy cy cell state, has a dysregulation or an imbalance in iron homeostasis. So that's the key. So it turns out in even the healthy state, our body has some complex mechanisms to tell iron where it should be distributed, stored, how much in the blood, how much in the liver, et cetera. And in P. vera, that balance is uh, deregulated. 
This is a lovely drug. It's an injectable drug. It's weekly. I should also let people know I am a, a co-author on this abstract. Um, Ruben, I think the key with this drug is, is that it can lead folks in the early stages of investigation here to become phlebotomy free. We oftentimes as physicians um, underestimate, I believe in our patients, the degree to which the phlebotomy process is uh, uncomfortable for our patients. Waiting to get the blood drawn, the actual blood draw event, the needle, the frequency, the anticipation. Uh, sometimes people have vasovagal events at these phlebotomies. They're not benign uh, procedures. Um, and so the PTG300 aims to restore that iron homeostasis to allow patients to become phlebotomy free. The trial itself is pretty ingenious. It's basically three trials in one, which also includes a phase where patients will be randomized to staying on the drug or coming off for a short while and then crossing back over if and when needed. So the early stages uh, were showing encouraging safety profile and uh, this signal for phlebotomy free. And so now as the drug continues on into later stages, let's see what the durability of this phlebotomy free, you know, how long can this be maintained? Is this a uh, standalone drug approach, Ruben, or is it an adjunct or combined with hydroxyurea or other agents? And then finally, will it also uh, continue to show as the early signal that there might be an improvement in the quality of life, disease modification, all of these other measures? Um, so in summary, I think this is an agent to keep watching. Let's get more data, more patients as it continues to go into phase two and, and later stages of development. Wonderful. Now, progress is uh, occurring not only in MS, in PV, but there's also uh, movement in ET. Uh, there's the LSD1 inhibitor, IMG7289, that uh, is having an impact on MPNs. There's increasingly mature data from a uh, large phase two in its use in myelofibrosis. Uh, and there are now ET studies. There's an ongoing ET study investigator initiated at, at my institution uh, that uh, Robert Sherber and I started, and then there's a company-sponsored one with data being presented uh, at EHA uh, as an e-poster. So an interesting drug. Uh, it's having activity. Uh, the, the ET data is, is certainly uh, maturing uh, and, and exciting to see both that and then a global phase three study that Serge and I are leading that again would uh, put the word out there for people to consider referring patients for enrollment. Second line study of rope-pagulated interferon uh, control arm uh, of an agrolide for individuals with, uh, with uh, problematic ET. So important options that, that are evolving. Now we also saw so, some updated data uh, regarding some of the, the rare NPN types, including updated data as it relates to the just announced approved right. uh, avapritinib. Why don't you just share with folks a little bit what do they need to know about uh, avapritinib? Well, the, the quick update on avapritinib is, is uh, seismic in the rare disease field uh, space. So the, the, the supposition here is that systemic mass cytosis, really kind of its own MPN entity now, uh, is largely driven by something different than our JAK-STAT pathway, and that's the KIT, K-I-T pathway. Um, and we've known that for quite some time at a biology level, but targeting KIT specifically has gone through some iterations. 
Um, in this space, you do already have the uh, oral drug Midastorin, which was approved several years ago. Uh, but the abapritinib is a, a really nice development. It's a very kit-selective or specific drug. And these trials were done in a very lovely way in order to collect quite a bit of translational or correlative knowledge. So I think a lot of disease biology has come out of there. So that's right. So during the EHA or just after EHA was completed, we found out that abapritinib was approved in this advanced mastocytosis space. It's also a drug that can be used in solid tumors uh, such as GIST. And Ruben, this is a great point you made. I really want to emphasize it for our viewers out there. What you said is so important. You and I work in a space that's considered a quote, rare disease area. But many times, as you and I have seen, the breakthroughs made in more narrow, smaller spaces are then extrapolated out uh, into other areas. And to that point, some of the FDA approvals lately are tumor agnostic, meaning that it's not an MPN drug or a breast cancer drug or a GIST drug, it's a pathway drug. So I just wanna emphasize that. So avapritinib, FDA approved in the US, and so I think the last part of this would be to monitor for a toxicity and safety. I think overall it's shown to be a, a well-managed drug. There was a signal, as we all know, early on that there was some, um, uh, there were some uh, bleeding, head bleeds uh, early on. There were no deaths from this. And these were mainly in patients with lower platelets. And there were some quick and easy modifications the investigators made to ensure this is a safe drug. And importantly, this drug will now move into the indolent space, indolent systemic mastocytosis for clinical trials. And so, again, safety and, and uh, outcomes there will be important in, in that earlier group. Wonderful. Well, a lot of exciting things that, uh, that are evolving, uh, both in the more common MPNs and, and even in the less common ones. Uh, it, it, interesting seeing the data from even in hyper-eosinophilic syndrome, again, diseases where we typically have not had many options, uh, further update on mepolizumab, which is an anti-interleukin-5 monoclonal antibody for patients with difficult-to-control disease. Now they were presenting data at EHA in over 100 patients that have been treated uh, uh, with this disease with, uh, with efficacy. You know, so, so very exciting to see. And again, many of these things may have, you know, potential links or interactions with, uh, with, with uh, other conditions, uh, both uh, malignant a, a, as well as benign. Now, there's a, a couple key drugs in phase three that uh, due to their timing don't necessarily have an update at this year's meeting, but are probably important for us to mention. You had mentioned one uh, earlier, which is a, a middle stat. Uh, it's a telomerase inhibitor. There's a suggestion of a survival benefit. Mm -hmm. That survival benefit, a bit like I had mentioned with mamalodinib, may not be solely tied to the degree of benefit in spleen or symptoms, but may have, may have other mechanisms. Is that decrease in inflammation? Is that decrease in additional mutation pressure or uh, progression-free survival? I don't think we know yet. Uh, but 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 a very interesting signal that's being tested in important second line phase three study. Also, some interesting stuff with MDM two inhibition. Uh, Naveen, any comments on the status with the MDM two inhibitors? Yeah, and you know, two things to say. Gosh, you're just bringing up so many important points. I just want to make sure people are capturing what you're saying. 
this Immetalsat story is exactly what you were mentioning earlier, which is we've moved away, I think, appropriately and smartly to just focusing on spleen and looking at these other outcomes, quality of life, symptom burn, something you personally pioneered for our field, overall survival. And to your point, the Immetalsat randomized phase three will be, to my knowledge, Ruben, it'll be the first trial in our field to make overall survival the primary endpoint. So kudos uh, to all the folks there. Uh, with regards to these other pathways, as you said, so MDM2 inhibitor you asked me about, fascinating science, uh, really pioneered um, by many of our colleagues, Dr. Ron Hoffman in New York and others. I think this is a good example of what we were talking about earlier. So as we move beyond JAK inhibitor or combining, we must balance the uh, patient toxicity safety profile with the science. I'm still very uh, optimistic about this field of MDM2 inhibition, both in earlier MPN states such as P. vera and in myelofibrosis. But I think the early studies have shown us that we have to mitigate toxicity. So GI toxicity and others, I think we will do that as a field over the coming years. And you know, dosing, schedule, all of these things will need to be worked out, but definitely several companies involved there at all stages of MPN, right? So PV, to chronic MF, to even accelerated blast phase combining with hypomethylators. So simply an exciting field. But again, we have to think about toxicity and how we pair these drugs as we move forward. Well, wonderful. Well, to summarize for folks, a uh, tremendous amount of excitement, uh, new therapies, uh, new information on JAK inhibitors as single agents, uh, their impact, impact on survival, uh, multiple new therapies alone or in combination uh, in the front line and second line potentially, new options in PV, new options in ET, new options in mastocytosis, hyperesinophilic syndrome, or, or others. So a lot of exciting things going on. Uh, again, we'll plug our uh, upcoming Texas MPN workshop, August 20 and 21st. And Naveen, final thoughts, exciting things for the future of MPN for people to keep an eye on. Uh, two exciting thoughts, uh, Ruben, as we head into thinking about our own workshop and, and into ASH. One is I want folks to pay attention to the explosion of translational research that's coming out a lot of times out of the clinical trials themselves or uh, on separate studies. Our colleague, uh, Dr. Nunglia, presented really groundbreaking research at ASH that the JAK mutation or driver MPN mutations can be acquired as early as in utero. So just after birth, uh, uh, not genetic as somatically acquired mutations. And so the implication is that these MPN hits can occur at the earliest stages of life. I think that may have some implications, Ruben, on in the next 10 years on our thinking about CHIP, chemo prevention, early detection. You and I have talked about this for hours, so I, I want people to focus on that. And then two is the excitement in terms of having multiple drugs in the clinic and figuring out doctors and patients together how to best sequence, cost of care, insurance, availability, and then monitoring of toxicities, both uh, short and long-term. I think these are exciting topics because we didn't have these to talk about five years ago. There wasn't this much research going on. And so it shows you that even in rare disease fields, there are many people out there, many people who are excited and interested. And I believe in my heart that 
online and social media communities have brought many of these stakeholders together, patients, advocates, caregivers, nonprofit organizations, pharma, uh, investigators. And so I would urge folks to, to be active in your communities, online, social media. If you have a question, if you have an idea, if you want to meet someone, get out there and reach out because no matter how rare a disease is, it's a disease that you or your family member or your loved one have, and there's likely someone out there who's working on that field. Ruben? No, I would agree entirely. A lot of exciting things. And uh, again, in aggregate, this is a very significant group of individuals. There's a lot of tie with even as we learn about MPNs, the ties in with the issues of clonal hematopoiesis, mm. the issues of predisposition to thrombosis, uh, the issues of aging. You know, mm. the, the right. more we unravel the story behind some of these aspects, one never knows the implications in terms of broader populations in terms of health and disease. But exciting times will leave uh, folks at that and look forward to our, our meeting coming up this summer. A lot of exciting things to delve into regarding the future of MPNs. Wonderful. Bye-bye and thank you. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. Follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk to share your thoughts on the topics discussed. Visit VJHemonk.com for cutting edge updates from our leading experts as well as exclusive coverage of all of the latest news in the field of MPNs. Be sure to subscribe to BJ Hemont Podcasts, which are available on Spotify, Apple, and Podbean.